I'm turning this evening to Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8 and verse 31. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? And our subject will simply be, is God with us or against us? The uh, apostle says that he knows. Look back to verse 28. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. I'm going to look at a number of verses in this chapter this evening. But just for background, look first at this 28th verse, and then we'll come to our text. We know, says the apostle, there's something certain that he's speaking about in this 8th chapter of Romans. It's certain that all things work together for good to them that love God. How does he know that? Well, because it's taught throughout the scriptures that once we're reconciled with God by conversion through Christ, then all the influences upon our lives in heaven and earth are ultimately directed by God and all things will work together for our spiritual and our eternal good. They won't necessarily appear to work together for our earthly good, but for our spiritual and eternal good. That's the issue here. We know, we can be certain of this, not only is it the teaching of the book of God, but we've proved it in our lives, the apostle may say, that every circumstance and every situation is orchestrated to serve our spiritual and eternal well-being if we walk with God. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. So there's something certain. All influences, very little appears to work together in the interests of people who have never found God. Of course, they're under the providence of God, the rule of God, but nothing seems to go right. I cannot say that I'm in the hands of God and all circumstances serve for my spiritual and eternal interests. Even hard things turned out in the end to have been a blessing to me in some way. All the circumstances of life are woven like a, a great tapestry. All these threads being woven and rewoven as life proceeds. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Now that's the background of this 
31st verse. What shall we then say to these things? This whole matter of being reconciled with God, finding and knowing him, our lives from then on being orchestrated and governed by him. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? What's this? If God be for us, is it possible people think that God could be anything other than for us? One of the most foolish ideas that possesses the human mind is what is often called universalism. That if there is a God, everyone is his child. And everyone will ultimately go to heaven. And this is the assumption of many intelligent people. Where do they get it from? This is a massive belief that if there is a God, we are all subjects of his special interest. And we are all on the road to eternal glory, perhaps with a few very, very, very wicked exceptions. And that's what most people will think. The assumption is if somebody dies, well, if there is a heaven, they're there. They're up there looking down upon us. Well, it's a massive assumption because it really does govern the way you live. If you think in those vague, rosy terms, you need never bother about personal reconciliation with God, whether you are really accepted by him, whether you truly know him, because what is fogging your mind is this vague notion that everybody is and everyone will make it in the end. So you can't think about spiritual things and you won't and you won't trouble to. So it's important to ask wherever do people get it from? Where is it taught? Is it in the only serious great manual for any spiritual belief the word of God the scriptures the Bible no the Bible's full of ifs if you are among the accepted it doesn't teach this universal notion well then where does it come from it comes from just what we want what is easy for us to believe it's a total assumption. It rests on no valid authority, whatever. Surely you have to have an authority for the things you've come to believe as facts. There's no authority for that. It's completely vague, muddled, with no foundation anywhere. Indeed, the slightest thought about Almighty God, and you realize it's absurd. Would God really have everyone in heaven? If God is God, a God of power, we have standards, values, written in our constitution. Thou shalt not do such and such. You must do this and that. Standards of righteousness and of duties. Where do they come from? They're in our being. 
Our creator has put them there. Any thought about God sees God as holy and perfect. He is the absolute, the perfect, from which everything emanates. But the idea that everybody is blessed by God and everybody is accepted by him and everyone will go to heaven, why that turns it God. And dare I say it, just to help you think, dare I say it, but it turns God into a rather pathetic, forgetful old man. He's forgotten he's holy. He's so old and so failing, he's forgotten he's just. He's forgotten his standards and his principles, and he doesn't care anymore, and he doesn't mind who inhabits heaven, and he doesn't mind who he accepts or what we've done and how we live and how much guilt there is on our record. God must be such a God if universalism is true. Well, you'd repudiate that with horror. God is God. He has attributes. They are revealed in the scripture. He is infinite. He is everlasting. He is all-knowing. He is altogether wise. He is holy and perfect and pure. And he is just. He is unchanging. He is, we say, immutable. He is faithful to himself. He cannot betray or go back on his own being and his own character. God cannot sin. God cannot lie. God cannot fail. Or he ceases to be God. And that's impossible. So universalism, however you look at it, not only is there no authority for it, it is absurd. It is a nonsense. So the Apostle Paul says in verse 31, if God be for us, don't assume it. Don't count on it. Don't think it's bound to be so. If God is for us, are your sins forgiven? What's this about the forgiveness of sin? People think, well, I've done bad things. It's worse than that. You are a bad person. No, no, I'm not a bad person. I've just done some bad things. No, you're a bad person. Every one of us is. By nature, you're proud. By nature, you're deceitful. It's because it's in your nature that we lie. By nature, we are all the things we do. We are bad people. You can't just do a few good deeds and hope that God will forget the rest. Suppose you live on a farm. There's a lot of muck outside and dirt and piled up in the corner over there somewhere there's manure and smelly things. We're city people, unthinkable things to us. Well, you haven't done much to help your wife lately. So you think, I'll go into the kitchen and give her a hand. 
and on the way you slip over and you go foot first into the manure and you're covered in slime and you stink and you boldly go into the kitchen and say, look, I'll help with that. I'll do this. I'll do... You get thrown out. You're not fit to be in the kitchen. You're covered in muck. I'm sorry for the illustration, friends, but you can't just do a few good deeds and think that wipes off the slime and the muck and the record of sin and the years of unbelief and the years of pleasing ourselves and the years of temper and greed and meanness and hostility. Some good works are just banished by the stench in the nostrils, as it were, of Almighty God. We need absolute forgiveness and cleansing in order to be accepted. If God before us, for God to be for us, we need his forgiveness and we need him to change us and to give us new lives and a new nature. That's what this is all about, friend. So let's get out of our minds universalism even to begin with. How are we to be accepted? Verse 32, which immediately follows. He that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? He, that's God, that spared not his own son. What amazing words these are. He who did not hold back from allowing his own son to go into this world to suffer rejection and ultimately the agony of the cross of Calvary. He who did not hold back but poured out from heaven the wrath due to punish the sins of people, to punish his own son. He that spared not his own son, his own son, Christ was God's son. Problem. That may just suggest to you or me that somehow Christ is less than the Father because he's described to us as his son. He must be in some way smaller or less than the Father. It doesn't mean that at all. Son speaks to us of different things. It means he is God. If someone is the son of God, well, in human terms, you'd say he is his father's flesh and blood. In divine terms, you say the son shares the same divinity and godlike essence and being and quality as his father. The word son, when it's son of God, spells equality. Equally God, equally divine, equally eternal, 
equally possessed of all the divine attributes of infallibility and perfection and knowledge and wisdom. Son is drawing attention to sameness. As just on earth you'd speak of my flesh and blood. He is of God, the Father, the same. He that spared not his own Son. When you think of the Son of God, it's sometimes helpful to think of ancient kings. A king, the aging king, though in this case, the Father and the Son are the same age. They're everlasting. But in ancient times, the king would pass authority to the son. He would still have authority, but the son would be the executive king, the regent, the one who effectively governed and ruled. He's a mature man. Everybody counts him the same as the father. That helps us to see that with God, father and son is equality, but it points to sameness. Members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I thought I ought to explain that. He that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all. God delivered him up. Just a minute. We read the Bible, and it seemed to be the Jewish people at that time that delivered him up. They screamed and shouted for his execution. Yes, they did. And then we look again. Yes, they didn't actually do it, though. They made the Romans do it for them. The Roman authority actually delivered him to be crucified. So it's Jews and Romans. Where does God the Father fit into this? Well, it was God the Father orchestrated the whole thing. And when we read, delivered him up for us all, it teaches us that for the Father and the Son, this was voluntary. Christ went to the cross in an entirely voluntary way. At any time, he could have stopped it. When it wasn't quite the time for him to be crucified, and they tried to take him and kill him before the time that God had fixed. Why he had such power, he would just walk through the midst of them and they couldn't touch him or arrest him because he was divine. But when the time came, he voluntarily allowed himself to be taken by wicked hands and slain. But we know that the great thing about the Crucifixion of Christ was not what people did. They drove the nails through his hands and feet, causing physical agony and suffering. He hung in the heat of the day on that cross, expiring over six hours. But that was nothing like the worst of it. The worst of it was when God the Father opened the heavens and poured out upon him all the punishment due to the people on behalf of whom he was dying. That was the worst part. 
And he suffered the eternal experience of separation from God and punishment on behalf of all who would be forgiven and converted and brought to know him. He that spared not the pain for the Father as well as the Son to veil his face. That's just speculation, as it were. Veil his face while the Son went to Calvary and the Father poured out his wrath upon the Son instead of us. The wrath of God, not the furious anger that human beings know, but the righteous, righteous indignation of a holy God against all sin. God must punish sin and destroy it by punishment. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Us all? Who's the all? Did he deliver him up for every human being that ever lived? No, the all refers to people of all nations. Many of the people in the early church were Jews. And they had always thought quite mistakenly that only the Jews were God's people. No, no. Just the Christian message. Christ came for people of all nations, all lands, Jews and Gentiles, and everyone else. So it's all sorts of people, all nations of people, not literally everyone, because the if is still there. If God is for us, he isn't for everyone, only for those who turn to him who tell him they need him, who repent of their sin and come to him. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him, with him, he gives us the son, Jesus Christ. We come to know him. We are his and he is ours. And he is the one whose hand is upon our lives. And we can pray to him and call upon him. And we cannot see him, but he smiles upon those who love him. And his favor is toward them. How shall he not with Christ, with him, also freely give us all things? What are the all things? Gold-plated bath taps, fine cars, luxuries, wonderful things. No, no, no. All the influences of heaven in our lives. These are the things he gives us. He gives us a new life. He gives us new understanding. He gives us a new nature. He gives us spiritual life. He gives us the capacity to pray. He gives us wonderful things. He gives us help. Help to overcome our sin.
He gives us help day by day along the journey of life. And he takes us safely all the way to the end. People will oppose us. The devil will oppose us. The tempter, there'll be a fight. There's a spiritual battle. But we are given Christ. And with him, as Paul will go on to say, we are more than conquerors. The weakest of us will win through to the very end when God takes us to eternal glory. He that spared not his own son, what love, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all these things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? If you come to Christ and you have forgiveness and new life, you're safe. You will not be lost. Oh yes, we in our weakness, we may forsake him for a time. We may let him down. We may fall into sin. But you can be sure that he will extend his hand if he has to discipline us, shake us, however he does it, he will bring us back and we shall realize our need of him and repent of our sin and he'll take us and restore us. He's, he's going to see us through to the end. Look, it's here. Who is he that condemneth? Will the devil be able to say when we die in the last day, you can't go to heaven. You did this. You let your Lord down. You failed along the road. No, he won't. Because Christ has saved us. We belong to him. And he will work to bring us back, humble us and restore us. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again. It's Christ that died. If Christ has died for you, and you know that, your soul is safe. Nobody can bar you from glory, from reaching that eternal heaven. You're safe all your life because Christ has died. And what he does, he does perfectly. He's taken the punishment for all your, your sin. You have nothing to face. God in his great mercy will deal with you as though you have never sinned. Not only that, he'll deal with you as though you deserve the eternal reward because Christ has earned it for you. You're in Christ. Yea, rather that is risen again. Christ's rising again, his resurrection, not only proves he was God, but it demonstrates that he totally succeeded in bearing away the punishment of sin on our behalf. Nobody can say, but supposing there are some sins he never atoned for, and you will be caught out in the end. Oh no, he rose again. He atoned for every sin of a child of God. 
And now he's even at the right hand of God and he makes intercession for us. There are great teachers who have said that Christ probably doesn't say a word in this intercession. I'm not sure about this, but I can see the point they're making. It may be that he doesn't say a word. He's just there. And his wounds in his glorified risen body, his wounds are visible. And because Christ is there, his wounds show that he has atoned for all the sins of his people. And in that sense, his very presence makes a perpetual intercession for us. In Christ, we're under his protection. So the Apostle Paul goes on to say, and we must move to conclusion, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing can, friends. He is God. He is faithful. He will keep us, no matter what it takes. Shall tribulation, any kind of trouble, or distress, or persecution? No, because the longer we live as Christians, the more we know him, the more evidence we have of his kindness, the more he's answered our prayers, the closer we are to him, the more we realize there's no one on earth with his kindness and his faithfulness and his power and his knowledge and his constructive ways. There's no one to match him. Shall tribulation, distress, persecution or famine or nakedness read need or peril or sword? No, nothing can separate us from Christ and that glorious road to heaven. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Even the Apostle Paul, who was terribly persecuted, it deepened his love for Christ, and he proved him constantly. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Because if you're called to suffer, then you'll know all the more his nearness and his comfort and his promises. For I am persuaded, verse 38, that neither death nor life, well, death won't separate us from his love. Of course it won't. It will usher us straight into his presence. Life cannot separate us. No angel can separate us. Not even the fallen angels, the principalities and the powers so-called. Nor things present, nor things to come. We're not afraid of the future. Nor height, nor depth. However great the problem that we face, we shall come to him in prayer and we shall have his support and his power, and his deliverance, and his help. Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. To be loved by God. Let me close with this, friends. Can there be anything 
to surpass this, anything greater than this, to be loved by God, who is God, almighty God, immense, fills all things, the gigantic genius of the, behind the universe, God whose understanding is immeasurable in human terms. Almighty God, with all power and purpose, to love a creature like me, to love down into this world, to love you, to say I am your God, and I will be your guardian and your Lord, your ruler, your all in all. And Christ, my Son, the Saviour, has come to die for a sinner like you to lift you up, to have the love of God, the thoughts of God upon us, beyond our understanding, the smile of God, the kindness of God. How foolish we are to turn away from him. You need his forgiveness. You need the new life which he gives. You need to be accepted by him. If God is for us, to be accepted, the biblical word is justified. You need God to say about you, I declare that I view this man, this woman, as righteous. But you're not. But God will say that because Christ has died for you if you trust him. Christ has earned for you eternal glory and therefore under the wing of Christ God can say of you he, she is righteous and mine and I am his hers come to him repent of your sin ask him to tell you in your innermost being that he saved you that you're his and walk with him. Let's pray together. O oh Lord, look upon us all. Bury these things in our minds and hearts. Show us what they mean and draw us to Christ, our Saviour. O oh Lord, move, we pray, and bless us all. We ask it in our dear Saviour's name, for his sake. Amen.